Good morning. morning. And happy spring. (laughs) It's beautiful. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 1.22. Take your pencil out and scratch out the uh, number two there. Uh, fifth Sunday night, so it's our music night, and also with your pencil right next to that, 7 p.m. It's going to be 7 p.m. So music night tonight, 7, and then ice cream after. See, uh, prayer meeting Wednesday at 7, uh, Andrea's number for the prayer chain. Next Sunday, April the 7th, after communion, uh, pizza and a movie in the Fellowship Hall, bring a dish to pass, and then afterwards there'll be an Easter egg hunt for the children. See that friends, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren are welcome, and if you'll sign up on the helps board, uh, that would be great. So that would kind of be the last, your last opportunity. Helps board is the one right outside of this door. Uh, if you would like to uh, donate candy for the Easter egg hunt, that would be appreciated. There's a box or basket or something in the foyer there. Days of praise are here. Uh, financial note, acts and facts also here for April and free grace broadcaster. So lots of reading for you to do. All right, what have I missed? Our scripture for meditation this morning comes from Second Thessalonians. Read chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 18.
If you'll stand with me, we'll ask the Lord to bless our service. Phil, would you open for us? Good morning. Will you take your brown hymnals this morning and turn to number 33 in the brown? 
doing things different, and I chose that. <laughs> I chose last night as I was falling asleep. I was thinking about our ladies' conference that we attended this week, and they had some wonderful music, but the, the one uh, girl, Rachel, brought um, special music, and it happened to be our camp theme from two years ago, and it's just such a great hymn, and I really wanted to sing it this morning. So most of you should have um, one of these. If you do not, you know, do you have extra? I have extra right here. Printed out extra. Lydia has extra. And you know, I have. I have them up here. We got it. I think this is three. Yep. Anyone else need one? Oh, Dale needs one. Uh, Hannah, Lydia. You can play from this. Right. Oh, you need one. Um, so it's it's a hymn, but the 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 verses are one, two, three. The chorus is at the bottom. At the very the last word at the bottom of the page is supposed to be fast. It's on the next page, but you don't really need to flip it over. You just, it's fast. On the last verse, I will tell you to flip it over, and the ending is on the back. But it should be pretty straightforward. A lot of people in here know it, so if you know it, sing it loud. And that's my reason. This is just a wonderful hymn. All right, go ahead.
somewhere safe in there so we might sing it again. <coughs> Scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, 17 through 25. That's 1887 in the Pew Bible. I'll stand. Again, this is 1 Peter 1, 17 through 25, 1887 in the Pew Bible. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you are, you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Please remain standing. I'm actually going to ask you to sit down. <laughs> Before the last hymn, um, the ladies that went to women's conference are going to come up and tell you a little bit, just a tiny bit of what they learned. It was so, come on up ladies, it was so jam-packed full of, of wonderful, wonderful things. I know that um, Mrs. Ate a lot had her phone recording device on the speaker's lectern. So they're recorded somewhere. I'm just not sure how to go about getting them if you want to listen to them. Eventually, I'm pretty sure that between Jared and Pastor, we will have them available somewhere. And I encourage you to listen to them. The speaker was wonderful. Um, her, she was um, a nuthetic counseling background doctor. I can't remember her degrees. Dr. Amy Baker, thank you, that was the name in my head, but I didn't think it was right, Dr. Amy Baker. I guess I will go first since I'm standing up here. I really don't want to go first, but I will because I'm standing up here already talking. Um, I, I'm not a great lesson, uh, note taker, but they had these wonderful booklets that had the notes in it and the fill in the blank so I could keep up, which was wonderful for me. And they also, for more adventurous, like my two oldest daughters, um, and I think Jolene, too, used this, and they did their own notes, and um, they just did a beautiful job down there, and we were at a hotel, and they had these gift bags, it's for everyone, and they made us feel so welcome, and they did, everything was beautiful, just absolutely beautiful, the music, and the fellowship, and um, we got to stay with, some of us got to stay with Dana McLeod, um, and which was really neat to, to see where she's at, and um, just fellowship with one another. Anyway, the, the first session... Um, I have to go to my notes because I don't remember. Um, but once I get through all the music stuff. 
was controlling our thinking and she opened up with, you do what you do and you feel what you feel because you think what you think. And then she said it again, you do what you do and you feel what you feel because you think what you think. And talking about taking our, our thoughts captives and how many, our brain's capability of, of capturing 88, sorry, 800 memories per second and how much stuff comes at us every day, every single, and how many, um, one million billion bits of information over a lifetime. And you do what you do, and you feel what you feel, because you think what you think, and what, what's coming at us, and, and where are we getting this from, the, between the ads, on, even if you don't watch TV, going down the highway. Last night, going down the highway, there was a blinking sign that was going out, and it was just flashing, just all that information coming at us, and what do we do with it? What are our filters that, that we can take those thoughts captive because of Christ? And he tells us we have to take every thought captive. Um, that's just like a little bit of what her first talk was about, and I will stop talking now. Well, I also chose to do mine on the first session, so I'm just going to follow Andrea and add on to it. Um, but first off, I do want to say it was a great opportunity to just take a step back from the daily hustle and bustle and spend time with these wonderful, godly women behind me and other um, women from our sister churches. It was just a great opportunity, a great weekend. Um, so the first session was on controlling our thinking. Um, it is said that we think 10,000 thoughts a day. Um, and she kind of asked us, what kind of diet are we giving ourselves in our thought life? Um, so why should we control our thinking? Well, first and foremost, because it's commanded of us. Um, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So that is the big <laughs> the big reason. Um, also we need to control our thoughts because um, temptation starts in the mind. So um, and also because pleasing thoughts thought pleasing thoughts to the Lord do not come automatically. It takes work. Um, she also discussed kinds of hindrances when it comes to controlling our thinking that in and of themselves aren't bad, but we, if we allow ourselves, if, if, if we let these things consume our thoughts, not so good. Things like sports, media, or social media, movies, work, food, those kinds of things. And she followed this up with kinds of worldly philosophies that compete for our minds. The world will tell you that you have to love yourself and that you, you know, you have so much value, um, and that love is a feeling. And if it looks good, feels good, and you enjoy it, then just go for it, you know. Um, so, um, so one of the steps, just one, <laughs> I'll mention that um, one of the things we can do when it comes to controlling our thinking is we have to recognize it is work, and it is very, very hard work. Hebrews twelve eleven says. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So um, I think that's a great verse just, for, just to meditate on. <laughs> um, and finally, she challenged us to recognize that as long as we enjoy our sin and our sinful thoughts, we will never love holiness and be willing to do the hard work it takes to achieve this holiness.
Hi. <laughs> um, I did not know what to expect going into this women's conference. I had never heard of Dr. Amy Baker. Nobody else has mentioned her, but I really liked her. From the get-go, she started off saying, ladies, this is going to be a hard session. She was very blunt about it, and she was right. All of her sessions that all of her topics that she talked about, they were hard to hear, but we needed to hear them, and I love that about her. In the fourth session, our last session of the week, Dr. Amy Baker spoke of desires that are too small. If you would think of a desire right now, and it is not to be like Christ, your desire is too small. One of those examples in the Bible would be Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah had the same problem just like us. Their desires were too small. Leah won the love of her husband, while Rachel won the love of a child. Rachel and Leah became jealous of each other because they were constantly competing just for this love. Jealousy causes us to see sin as shameless. When this happens, we get lost in the temporal world that we see and feel, and we fail to see the gift that God lavishes us with, eternity. And that, I, I, that story has stuck with me. It was one of the sessions that I related to a lot. <clears throat> Good morning. Um, this year was my third year going to Women's Conference, and um, it was a little bit tiring because I had just gotten back from one trip in the car to go on another trip in the car, um, but I like these people better. Than <laughs> um, as it has been mentioned before, our speaker was Dr. Amy Baker. And she spoke on a lot of different topics, and the topic that I want to talk about is the third topic, titled, I Wish I Was Dead. This is centered around self-pity, and she said that self-pity tends to overwhelm us when we let it. We often think, poor me, as if God has judged us unjustly. Self-pity is immediate comfort, but it's temporary. It is a sense of justification, and it's easy but it's false compassion. Self-pity shows us that suffering is unproductive, which is not true. But suffering has value even if we don't understand it. Self-pity is a poor substitute for having the sovereign king of the universe give you life and breath. And self-pity is a poor substitute for the joy that comes in the morning. Okay, so... Um, this retreat was, I mean, I think they're, they're all good, but some have always stuck out to me in my mind as being more wonderful than others. And this one reminded me of the, um, when I was this age and first starting women's conference and going to see Carol Trahan and some of you know that name. And, um, she was just, Carol Trahan just speaks scripture from memory and she, uh, applies it right the truth of God's word where it hurts the most, just like, oh, and it applies to your heart. And this woman had that same ability. She was very founded in God's word. She used God's word to apply it to situations. And I, I appreciated her very practical outworking. She would give us a, a, a principle from scripture and she'd say, now let's take that backwards and logically figure out what this means and how it applies to your life. And so I appreciated that about her. Um, she had this just very easy ability to listen to her and uh, she was energetic and bubbly and um, you know passionate about what she was talking about and so uh, I really appreciated her 
her teaching style too. And um, so I guess the only one that hasn't been talked about was the second session, which was one of actually my favorites. So that's, I wanted everybody to go first so that I could figure out what was not repeated. And uh, she, <clears throat> she's talked about understanding God's comfort. And she said her summary idea that she returned to was God's comfort coming to God's people who love God's son is so comforting that that comfort overflows to others. And she reinforced the idea that we do not have to have experienced the exact same issue that someone else is going through in order to extend God's comfort and love to them. And I really appreciated that because I've always thought, what am I supposed to say to someone going through this experience, especially in teaching? Like, I have not experienced half of the things that these children have. What am I supposed to say to them? Because I haven't experienced it. And so the first principle that she said is, if you have received comfort from God, you can give that comfort to others. Okay? So that I really, um, I appreciated that. And uh, she just talked about the fact that the true comfort is found in God's word. That's where comfort is found. False comfort is clearly not God's comfort, but we say things all the time um, that are not necessarily true. And then she also discussed Job's comforters, the instances where they might have been correct, like they might have been trying to apply God's word, but they weren't correct in Job's situation. And so um, the things that they said to him were not necessarily comforting. Um, so I'm trying to think of some other things that she mentioned in this section. Um, she says that God's comfort fails to bring comfort if we refuse to let it when we don't want to listen to the truth of his word. Um, she also reinforced that God does not spell comfort, R-E-L-I-E-F. God does not spell comfort as relief from our suffering or from our trial. He spells it C-H-R-I-S-T. And we need to learn the Christ behind the suffering and stop focusing on um, having our suffering relief, you know, relief from our suffering. Um, that's not necessarily what God is doing in our life. She also shared with us her personal trial. Um, I'll probably cry here. Her husband that she loves deeply has been diagnosed with incurable cancer. And she talked about the fact that as they're walking through this right now, um, that it can be so easy to get caught up in the circumstance um, and not see the God behind it. And she just brought us back to the fact that God's sovereignty means that God loves us. And she quoted Jerry Bridges that says that God in his love always wills what is best for us. And in his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about, even in terminal cancer. Um, so, and then I, I appreciated the last section of this session. She talked about, um, she went to Psalm 18, and she talked about the psalmist talking about the cords of death entangling me. Um, when I pass through the deep waters, I will be with you. And she talked about how she felt entangled by the cords of death because of the situation that she had been in or that they are now in. And then she brought us to the, the second half of the psalm where the psalmist says, from his temple, God heard my voice. He came down. He mounted the cherubim and flew to my rescue. And she reinforced those verbs. God hears, he comes, he flies to our aid. He's not sitting up there 
just, you know, um, a cold, impersonal God who doesn't care about the trials that we're, we're experiencing, he flies to our comfort. He flies to our aid. And he will not let us sink beneath the deep waters. So I really appreciated um, her all of her things that she said, but I'll just reinforce again which she says, God's comfort coming to God's people is so comforting that that comfort overflows to others. Amen. Amen. Um, now you may stand with me. <laughs> and take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 92. <laughs> Number nine two in the brown.
good report from our ladies' conference. Glad our ladies could go. Our text this morning is 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. A couple of things. Uh, remember that tonight is music night, fifth Sunday. So that's at 7 o'clock. And then afterwards we have an ice cream social. So I hope you will all come out for that. We're thankful for our new piano. No one, the church did not pay for this. It was a gift. So don't get all psyched with regard to that. I'm glad it was a gift because, you know, could we afford such a thing like that? Probably not. But it's, it's a gift and uh, we're so thankful uh, for it. And we'll be learning more and more how to use it. And we'll get a good chance tonight at music night um, singing hymns, songs, spiritual songs, and so forth. It should be a wonderful time. Well, our text is 1 Peter 1. In our last study, it demonstrated that the charge by God to be holy, because he himself is holy, was applied by Peter as a call to, for, to us to be holy in all that we do. Now, our ladies mentioned this morning that you know, our thinking determines what we do. So that's really true. You have to get your thoughts right, and then your actions will be right. But the point that Peter makes, of course, is that we ought to be thinking right in terms of the gospel and the grace of God and so forth. But then we don't just stop with thinking those thoughts. We get into the area of actually doing. The monastic error, however... Monastery, monastic, think of that, monks. Uh, they took the charge very seriously to be holy, but they viewed separation from the world as meaning that they should live in cloistered compounds away from the world as much as possible. So they lived in these uh, areas with Sadly, it promoted asceticism. Asceticism is the deprivation of the body uh, as a means to becoming holy. So you cut out all of the creature comforts. You live a Spartan life. You don't have a mattress on your bed. You have, you know, just a, a bag or whatever the deal is. You don't have springs. You have a board you sleep on. You don't eat sumptuous food. You eat stew and all of that kind of thing all the time. Um, and we looked at the biblical response to monastic life. We're to recognize that the Bible does warn us about the dangers of pursuing wealth. But secondly, that poverty is not commended in the Bible as a means to holiness. I think the monks missed that. They thought, oh, we'll just cut everything out strip it all down, we'll be as poor as we can possibly be, and uh, that'll make us holy. Well, it didn't make them holy, it made them proud. They thought, we are holy, you are not. <laughs> and they took that approach because of their ascetic lifestyle. In fact, and that was the third point, the ascetic lifestyle is actually condemned in Scripture as the means for holy living. Let me read it for you. It's from Colossians 2.20. Such regulations, and the ascetic regulations, indeed, that has an appearance of wisdom 
looks like it's holy. It looks like it's the right way to go. But those rules lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They're not going to make you holy. Colossians 2 verse 25. How do we implement a holy life then? Well, we refuse conformity to the evil desires once pursued in ignorance. We start thinking straight, and the ladies brought that out this morning. And secondly, there must be a holy actions, not just thinking, but using the parts of our body in a God-honoring way. And today's study deals with one aspect that Peter brings about in this business of holy living, and that is the fact that with God there are no favorites. So as we come to our study, let's ask for his intervention. Our Lord, this whole business of holiness is what all religions try to address. They try to address this. They know something about God, that he's not them, and that he's different. And therefore, how do we do things that are going to please this God, this different person? And uh, they go down all kinds of paths. They're human paths. They do this and it'll please God. Eat this and it'll please God. Drink this and it'll please God. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's rules and regulations. Rules and regulations all the way through as though that's the way to be holy and that's the way to please God. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to see that Holiness resides in one person only, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are beholding to him and his grace to us and his forgiveness to be holy. And he sends the Holy Spirit in our lives to initiate and to accomplish holiness. Bless us in this study and help us to get our heads on right about all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at the subject this morning of the fact that God does not have any favorites. And your first point in the bulletin outline is that God the Father is also God the Judge. People don't like to hear that. Let me say it again. God the Father is also God the Judge. Look at verse 17. Since you call on a Father who... Judges. Well, could anything be more clear? You could say it this way, that our God wears many hats. He's creator, he's ruler, he's king, he's sovereign, he's savior. And here in this text, he is father, he is judge. He wears all these hats and many more. But these are not simply titles. They are descriptive of who God is and how he relates to people. He is all of these things at one and the same time, but in being all these things, one role does not negate or compromise the other. I have some of this in my own family. I'm sure you do as well. When I'm functioning as a church officer, my children, now all adults, address me as pastor. Whenever they talk to me or refer to me in an official setting. They do this out of respect for the office that I hold. But when we are at home eating around the dinner table, they don't call me pastor. 
They call me dad or daddy. Why do they do this? I'm the same person no matter where we are and what we're doing. Well, part of it has to do with respect for the pastoral office and part of it has to do with the setting or the subject at hand. If they want a theological question addressed in a public arena, they aren't going to say, Dad, what does the Bible say about such and such? They just wouldn't do that. No, they will address me in my official role as teacher of spiritual doctrine. In short, they will not use the familiar and filial relationship that we have as father and child in a way that lends itself to the idea that just because I'm their father, they need not heed what I teach them from the Bible as their pastor. Now there's nothing pretentious about this. For the Apostle Paul told the church of Thessalonica, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. First Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and, 30, 12 and 13. So forget whatever personality conflicts you have, he's telling them. Think about the work. Think about the office that that spiritual leader performs for you and hold him in high regard because of the work, because of his office. Now, think about this. If this is so, on the horizontal plane, that is, sinner church leaders like me, being in no better position before God than sinner church members, and yet we must render respect for various roles, how much more is this imperative when it comes to the vertical relationship of us as the children of God the Father? So, here we are into a realm where there is no parallels. God is infinitely holy in character. We are holy in position while yet struggling for holiness in character, in deeds. God is creator. We are creatures. This is not a level playing field, is it? Wide gap. Oh, and the scriptures bear this out. David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 22 says, to God, how great you are, O sovereign Lord. There's no one like you. <coughs> and there's no God but you. As we have heard <coughs> with our own ears. That was his approach to God. O sovereign Lord, there's no one like you. And there's no God but you. When the ark was brought into Jerusalem, David composed a psalm in which 
His chief musician was to lead the people in singing. And this was the song. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, and ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. First Chronicles 16, verse 28 and following. It's talking about God as creator and sustainer, not just of Israel, but you see all the nations. They all need to recognize him as that. After the successful crossing of the Red Sea and the defeat of the Egyptians, Moses sang a song in the scriptures for us. Let me read the verse. This is his song. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, your majestic, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. By the blasts of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, Awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Exodus 15, verse 3 through 12. I want you to note that while Moses is praising God for what he has done, the praise stated also informs us of the distinct nature of, And power of God, even the created order, in this case the Red Sea, must obey his commands. Jesus brought that out, did he not, in his teaching as well. God says of himself, see now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death, I bring to life, I have wounded, I will heal. No one can deliver out of my Hand. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. Or again, for this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah 45, verse 18. 
Now, brethren, I don't know about you, but when I read scriptures like this, the effect on me is that I feel about that tall. In other words, I feel very small. Maybe that's true of you as well. We need to be reminded that God is God and there's no other. We need to be told again and again who and what God is and how he is distinct from his creation. Boy, all this talk of recent days from the Democrats about climate change. They're going to change the climate. I really chuckle. Something as vast as the climate can be changed by what? Stopping smoke from going out of chimneys? I doubt it. But they talk like it's doable. Something as vast as the climate. By the way, God says a lot about climate in the scriptures. Lightning, thunder, whirlwind storms, and so forth. And what he says about it in the scripture is that he's the author of it all. He's the author of it all. We need to understand that though God admits to being the father of believers, in so being, he does not abdicate his role as judge. Again, the psalmist says, O righteous judge who searches minds and hearts, bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. My shield is God most high who saves the upright in heart, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. Psalm 7, verse 9 through 11. The writer of Hebrews says to his people, You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels, In joyful assembly, you have come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men. You have come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse Him who speaks. Now if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth. How much will will we if we turn away from him who warns from heaven. At at, At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but the heavens. And the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12. Verse 22 and following. 
God is a judge as well as the Father. And as a judge, he is a just judge. Paul writes, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, you Christians. He will give relief to you who are troubled, to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, you Thessalonians, because you believed our testimony to you. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 6 and following. Now when we read a text like this, we think, well, it's good to know that God sees what's going on with his people at the hands of the world and will one day right all the wrongs. We think that's good. I can't wait. Maybe there is even a bit of gloating in the knowledge that the world is going to get theirs one of these days. But I want you to keep in mind what Peter is saying in our text, verse 17. Here it is. God judges each man's work impartially. Wow. Each man's work impartially. Each man means you. And me too. Each man means believers as well as unbelievers. Each man means children of the Heavenly Father as well as the enemies of God. God judges his people. And that's the second point in our outline. Did I say that right? Yes, I said it right. God judges his people. And that teaching makes us a bit more... It's a little more tough to take. You mean God is going to judge me, his child? Remember that God is both father and judge, says Peter. He does not take off his judge robes because he's wearing a father's smile. In fact, we could build a pretty strong case for God's love demonstrated through Judgment of sin. Moses speaking to Israel. They certainly did a lot of sinful things in their day. But here's what he says to them. He, God, humbled you, you Israelites, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you. The man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during the 40 years. Referring to their wilderness wanderings. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 through 5. Eliphaz, Job's friend instructed him, saying, Blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, 
but he also builds up. He injures, but he also has hands to heal. Job 5, verse 17 and 18. Now, the world doesn't have this concept. But we Christians better have this concept. The world has the idea that there's a good God, and that's what he's responsible for, all the good that happens in life. But then there's this bad God. There's this devil. And he's responsible for all the bad things that happen in life. So we got the good God. We like him. We have the devil God. And we don't like him because he brings bad things into our lives. But these scriptures are saying, hey, it's one God, and he's bringing both in life. <laughs> the good and the bad. He can wound, but he can also heal. And sometimes that is very disconcerting. It'll really grab a hold of your heart and twist it a couple turns when you say, but, but God is my heavenly father, and, and I'm his child, so why would he do that to me? Paul told the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church, the believers at Corinth, listen what he said. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 32. There is a remedial aspect to discipline. Again, he says, you have forgotten that word of of encouragement that addresses you as sons. This is from the writer of Hebrews. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes, I'm reading scripture, he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Wow. He punishes everyone? He accepts as a son? Yeah. He goes on, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. And then he explains. What son is not disciplined by his father? The writer of Hebrews is asking that question. If you are not disciplined, he goes on. If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and you are not true sons. Wow, I never connected that with being a son. I mean, if I, if I don't get correction and spankings and disciplines, then I'm not a son? No, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And in context, he says, moreover, <clears throat> we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us, For a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Hebrews 12, verse 9 and 10. Ah, there's a remedial aspect to the discipline that we didn't think about. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, you better think about it. (laughs) 
You better get some right thoughts about God's discipline. God's discipline emerges from his sense of right and wrong and his dedication by nature to always do what is right and just. That's why he judged Israel for those times in which they slipped into idolatry or immorality or even injustice in how they handled the problems of their own society. What was that? Their own judges were corrupt. They took bribes. They rendered decisions against the poor, against the helpless. And God said through Malachi, So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But they don't fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi 3 verse 5. (coughs) Wow. Wow. God saw, (coughs) excuse me, all this injustice in his own people. Sad thing, they thought God was just like them. But he's not like them. In support of that, Peter says it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? First Peter 4, verse 17. Folks, we know of no being like this on earth. Not one. There's always bias in men's evaluations and judgments. Oh, we may try really, 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 really hard to be impartial, to be open-minded, to be fair as we relate to one another. And there's more of this ability, I think, by God's enablement in one who is spirit-filled than in a person who is controlled by the spirit of this age. But with that said, we are still... Partial to family members. We're hard on others. Easy on those we say we love. And I use the expression say we love. Because it's not truly love. To allow our children and our friends and relatives. To continue on in sin. Unchallenged and undisciplined. Especially with regard to children. God says those whom I love. I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent, Revelation 3, verse 19. And he said that to the Laodicean church, which was the lukewarm church, neither hot, neither cold. And God was saying to them, I'm not going to put up with this. You're going to either become hot or you're going to become cold. I'm going to deal with you and we're going to see how this turns out. But you're not going to take this middle of the road approach to life I don't like warm in my mouth. I'll spit you out. I'm, I'm kind of reading the thoughts of the text. Tepid tea. 
neither hot nor cold, just kind of yucky. This is the foundation for Solomon's instruction to parents. He who spares the rod hates his son. I'm reading scripture. But he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Proverbs 13, verse 24. That's not the way we think. We think, oh, the rod hurts. A spanking is going to hurt. How can hurting someone be love? Because there's temporal hurt. And there's eternal hurt. That's how. And so Solomon goes on to say in the 23rd chapter, Punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. Oh, Proverbs 23, verse 14. There's a spiritual side to the discipline. What's God saying? Well, God knows this about a child. You should too. He says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Proverbs 22, verse 15. And the folly to which Solomon alludes is something his father taught him. Father David put it this way. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. Psalm 14, verse 1. This is the kind of folly the rod of discipline is designed to cure. The egghead know-it-all that just thinks, there's no God, I can do whatever I want. He doesn't bother me. And we live in a loveless age, we do, for all the talk about love. People equate lust with love. They have no clue that a disciplined home is love in action. Let children have their own way. Let them scream. Let them holler. Let them throw temper tantrums without correction. And you consign them to a life of rebellion to any and all authority, beginning in the home with mom and dad, then to teachers, then to employers, then to policemen, and so on until anyone who would dare to challenge or thwart their will in life and they become rebels I have a theory here's my theory brat kids make brat Christians say it will never affect the church I think it does affect the church brat kids make brat Christians that is to say having grown up always getting their way never being told no Never being made to abide by the no. They're used to having people pander to their every whim. I see it in the church. Adults who can't be committed, who have no excuse for why they cannot attend faithfully in their church attendance, in their service, in their prayer life, and so on. Unless they're prodded and pleaded with and conjoled. Yeah, then, but only then. They're like restless children, fidgeting in their seats because they cannot concentrate, they cannot commit, they cannot remain steadfast, unmovable, loyal, true. They are faithful only so long as their flesh agrees with the program, the message, the goals of the church. 
They determine their involvement as children determine theirs. Think about it. But I don't like to play baseball, a kid says. It's not much different than I don't like going to church. So they don't. Let me ask this very searching question. Why aren't the commands of God on the want-to list that we have for ourselves? Why is your list full of fun and games, but nothing that calls on you to stretch yourself to benefit your soul for eternity? Why can't you think beyond yourself or beyond your own immediate family? God gives us all six days of a week to labor, to work, to visit friends and family, even throw in some time for recreation. Is God asking too much that one day a week he, we pull aside from all of those pursuits, seek his face as we worship with his people? You say, well, pastor, you're preaching to the choir. We're here. Yeah, I know. We're not always here, though. Some believers are playing their way to hell, thinking, well, God is my father. Surely I'm safe in the arms of Jesus. Have you never read, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. The Jesus court... We're all going to have to stand before. Or again, Jesus' own lips. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word, Believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge Because he is the Son of Man. John 5, verse 22. That uh, Jesus whom you think is your Savior is also your judge. God judges his people. Christ judges his people. Now what's it like to live under the rule of an impartial God? Peter says, live your lives as strangers here. Verse 17, the latter part. Let me say it. Live your lives as strangers here. The writer of Hebrews tells us that this is the way the patriarchs lived. Speaking of the Old Testament saints. Let me read it for you. All these people were still living by faith when they died. 
They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. King James Version says, strangers and pilgrims. He goes on. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Now, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews 11 Verse 13 and following. Now if you think, well that was then but this is now. If you think because of the affluence of our age or the demands for creature comforts that God now makes allowances for sumptuous living, think again. Jesus taught, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, Who will trust you with real riches? True riches. He goes on. If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and Money, Luke 16, verse 8 and following. But we try, don't we? We try to serve both God and money. Peter, speaking for the apostles, said to Jesus, We have left all we had to follow you. And Jesus responded, to Peter and the eleven. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come will receive eternal life. Luke 18, verse 28. What is Jesus saying? He's saying you are not a loser to follow the footsteps of the one who said foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Luke 9 verse 58. And that was said to a man who had just promised Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But he didn't. (laughs) Because when Jesus told him point blank what it was going to mean for him to follow Christ. He got scared and went the other way. 
Bunyan put this together in his classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. He talks about along the road to the celestial city, Pilgrim was going, did meet with many dangers, but none so deceptive a danger as Vanity Fair. Let me read it for you. He writes, Almost 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city. As these two honest persons, he's referring to Christian and his wife Christiana in Pilgrim's Progress. So, almost 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city as these two honest persons. And Beelzebub, Apollyon, and Legion, with their companions, perceiving by the path that the pilgrims made, that their way to the city lay through this town of vanity. Now what is he saying here? He's saying the devil and his legions of wicked angels figured out that Christian and Christianity were going to have to pass because they're on a certain road, they were going to have to pass through the town of Vanity. That's the way the road's going. It's going, to, you're going to, they're going to have to go through this town. So, and let me read on, they contrived here in Vanity to set up a fair. A fair, F-A-I-R. A fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity, and that it should last all the year long. Therefore, I'm still reading, at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses and lands and trades and places and honors and preferments and titles and countries and kingdoms and lusts and pleasures and delights of all sort as whores and operators of brothels, wives and husbands and children and masters and servants and lives and blood and bodies and souls and silver and gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. Good for Bunyan. He, he ran out of trying to describe it all. He says, but there's a lot more there than I can put in my, in my story. He goes on. And moreover, at this fair, there were all times to be seen jugglings and cheats and games and plays and fools and apes and knaves and rogues and that of every kind. Here are to see, be seen as well that for nothing, that is for free, thefts, murderers, adulteries, false swearers, and that of blood-red colors. What's he saying? He's saying Vanity Fair is everything sensuous and alluring and self-gratifying and pleasurable and pleasant, satisfying to the flesh, that the world possesses and which it offers to all of us. Just like Satan did with Jesus. Remember that? Took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you all this if you'll bow down and worship me. That's Vanity Fair. 
All you've got to do is renounce this steadfast allegiance to Christ and your allegiance to God the Father. And it's a real danger for it. It becomes entrenched and deep-rooted in this world instead of living in the world aloof as strangers who are cautious about entanglements lest the world become their friend and God become their enemy. Are we lovey-dovey and up to the world? The Apostle Paul warned the brethren at Philippi, for I, as I have been often told you before, and now I say it again, even with tears, Many live, if you listen to this, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Why? Their, their God is their stomach. What's he saying? Their God is their appetites. Their glory, what they get their highs on, is their shame. If it's shameful, that's where you're going to find them. Their mind, I'm reading still, their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, verse 18 and following. I read this and I say, is this you? Is this me? Are we living our lives as strangers here? Is our citizenship in heaven? Do we eagerly await? Do we anticipate a savior from there? Or would we rather he just delay a little bit so that we can revel some more in Vanity Fair? The early Christians went through it all and they, their motto was even come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We've had enough of this vanity fair. We've had enough of this world. So Peter's first point is live as strangers on earth. Don't make earth your loved habitat. Secondly, live your lives, he says, in reverent fear. Let me put it this way. Christians who do not fear God misunderstand both God as Father and God as Judge. I'm afraid of God. They misunderstand because they think that having God as Father gives them kind of an edge when it comes to God as Judge. They pour God into their mold. They are unjust as fathers and mothers with their children, often turning a blind eye to their sins or showing partiality because the kids are, after all, their kids. And so they conclude that God will be lenient or God will look the other way or he will rend a favorable judgment simply because we're family. Do you know the wicked think this way? Let me read it for you. God said of the wicked, When you see a thief, 
you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil. You harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept quiet. You thought, I'm still reading scripture, you thought I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and I will accuse you to your face. Consider this, you who forget God, I will tear you to pieces and none will be able to rescue. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me. He who prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. A thankful heart is a humble heart, brethren. A humble heart is a dependent heart. Not proud and arrogant, but dependent upon God. When Jesus, God's very own Son, the Son of His love, took upon Himself a flesh and blood body, was made in the likeness of men, when He took upon Himself the responsibility of being the Redeemer of His People, verse 18 of our text says, You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Well, how did God the Father relate to him when he was made sin for us if he was a lamb without defect? When he was, in fact, God's own beloved son. How did God, the Father, relate to him when he was made sin for us? Did God, the Father, say, Well, now, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I must treat him special. I must cut him some slack. I must reason that... He is condemned by ignorant and sinful man, though he really is innocent. No, there was none of that. Paul says it this way. Speaking of God, he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Romans 8.32 Isaiah concurs saying, surely he took our infirmities, he carried our sorrows, yet we considered stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. To crush him. And to cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life a guilt offering. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53, excerpts from that chapter. Jesus' own exclamation from the cross, and you know it well, was this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken 
why have you abandoned me? And yet, and yet, you think that God will show favoritism towards you because you call him Father. Live your lives in reverent fear, acknowledging that God, as an impartial judge of men, will have to treat you with impartiality. If we ever get past the judgment of God, it will be on the merit of Jesus Christ alone. And those who know Jesus, verse 22 of our text, purify themselves by obeying the truth. Is there a reverent fear of God in your brand of Christianity? What about you who have never made a commitment to Jesus? Think of it this way. If judgment begins with the family of God, and the Bible says it does, what's going to happen to you? In other words, if God's going to judge his own people, what's going to happen when he judges you and you're not one of his people? May the Lord open your eyes to your real need of a forgiving Savior, an atoning Savior, a Savior on a cross who died for his people's sins. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. Praise you for it. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Help us to stop taking your grace for granted if we're Christians. And thinking, oh, well, God's my Father. Jesus is my Savior. And then we go on living as we please. Now, if it's really true that we've been transformed by God and His grace, then we're going to live differently. And if we don't know salvation this morning, it's because we don't know Jesus as Savior and we've not dealt with our sin in a biblical way. What we've tried to do is pay for our own sin, And we think the puny little things that we've done that could be called good by man, we think, oh, that's going to have great eternal merit. Brownie points with God. No, not when the cost of redemption is the shed blood of the sinless, perfect Son of God, Jesus. How could we ever get to the point, oh Lord, where we think, that the puny little things that we do somehow buy us forgiveness with you. No, it's the precious life of your son who paid for our debt if we will have him, if we will trust him. Lord, we won't do it unless you grant us faith and repentance. Please do that. And we'll praise you for what you're going to do in our lives. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, 108, 108 in Trinity. We'll stand as we sing.
That hymn writer had his head on right. Whate'er, whatever my God does is right. <laughs> so the things he brings into our lives, be it sorrow, be it happiness, whatever, it's right. God's doing right by his people. Say, yeah, but I don't like being spanked by God. Well, no one does, but he does that to save us, right? He disciplines us that we might be holy. For without holiness, we'll not see the Lord. The writer of Hebrews says that plain and clear. So, yeah, thank you, Lord, for spankings, for redirections, for putting up roadblocks, for opening this path, closing that one. Whatever he does, whatever he ordains, he's right. And we need to be thankful. Okay, tonight I remind you that our service is at 7, not 6, 7 o'clock. It is music night, so we'll have all kinds of music. And afterwards, ice cream social. Invite your friends and come out at 7 o'clock. We are dismissed. Thank you.